Hello and welcome back to The Hated and the Dead with Tom Lehman. As you've probably been able to tell from the title, today's episode will be a little different from our usual ones. We will not be discussing one person today, but a loosely connected group of individuals whom my guest has christened Adventure Capitalists. These people are behind what are known as Exit Projects, attempts to create private sovereign entities outside the jurisdiction of traditional nation-states. These projects often find their political and ideological basis in libertarianism, a way of thinking that presupposes individuals as above all else consumers in a society where the state has been subordinated to the needs and logic of the market. Whilst these exit projects could be interpreted positively, as a way of oppressed or overlooked people escaping the authoritarian governments that run so much of the world, the people that propose to make these exit projects are almost always wealthy Americans, who often work with dictators to get their exit projects off the ground. These projects can take the form of offshore artificial islands, suburbs of major US cities, or, in the future, they may take the form of virtual realities or space stations designed by the likes of Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. Especially in the light of the Epstein revelations, one has to ask the question, what do these adventure capitalists wish to do on their own private islands that they cannot do in San Francisco or New York? Here to discuss all of this with me is Raymond B. Crabe, professor in the Department of History at Cornell University in New York State. Raymond is the author of the upcoming book Adventure Capitalism, A History of Libertarian Exit from the Era of Decolonization to the Digital Age, which comes out next month. So if you enjoy our conversation, be sure to keep an eye on PM Press. Raymond and I discuss the origins of libertarianism in the United States, the bizarre tendency for libertarians and adventure capitalists to see themselves as under attack from a system that has allowed them to become unimaginably wealthy, and the prospect for the so-called exit projects in the years ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce the adventure capitalists. Hi Raymond, how are you? I'm I'm very good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. I'm I'm looking forward to this episode, but I'm also slightly apprehensive because it's going to be a slightly different episode to my usual ones. We're not talking about one person today, but we're talking about a kind of collective, the adventure capitalists. That's your term rather than mine. You suggested this as a as a topic. Um very simply to start off with, how would you define an adventure capitalist and why are they as a group important and interesting um well thank you for yeah thank you for having me and for agreeing to sort of take on a a slightly uh uh different uh, set of people here um i ended up using the term adventure capitalist to talk about people who uh essentially one could call libertarian but libertarian in a u.s frame. I mean, it's not totally specific to the U.S., of course, but I mean, in much of the world, I think libertarian, certainly in Spanish, libertario, um, is a term that largely is synonymous with anarchist, and uh, the individuals I'm talking about here are not anarchists. I mean, I, you know, I understand anarchists traditionally to be both against hierarchy, authority, the state, but also uh, against capitalism. And so the individuals that I'm 
talking about here uh, as adventure capitalists are hypercapitalist. Uh, and they're not even actually, in, in some ways, they're not against the state per se. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of way in which we can talk about um, how they understand the state and what it is that they're agnostic. And they're agnostic about the state, I guess is one way to put it. But they're certainly not agnostic about the market and about capitalism. They're very you know, fundamentalist believers. And so adventure capitalist is just the term that I wanted to use in part because uh, a lot of the projects that I talk about in relationship to these individuals are venture capitalist schemes, venture capitalist undertakings. Uh, but there's also a kind of adventurist component to these projects uh, in a way that is often, you know, often the kinds of critiques that are made of the revolutionary left, right? This sort of adventurism uh, of Che Guevara in Angola or Bolivia or something like this. And it's an accusation that's often made about the left, but here you have individuals who are engaging in activities that are kind of neo-colonial, <laughs> if you want to call them that, uh, forms of uh, new forms of sort of dispossession and primitive accumulation uh, in places that are decolonizing around the globe in the 60s and the 70s. So I try to use the term adventure capitalist as a way to signal um, uh, who these individuals are and to stress their kind of libertarian bona fides. Thank you. You, the word that you just mentioned, libertarianism, is a word that we're going to keep coming back to today. And I just wanted to delve into the history of that term, mm -hmm. Raymond, the kind of recent history of that term to sort of understand where these people have come from, because I think you'd agree that they haven't sprung out of a vacuum. Um, they have quite clear ideological foundations and historical foundations. Um, when I was preparing for this interview, I, I was subconsciously thinking of libertarianism and the kind of quite extreme conception of capitalism that you mentioned as being basically an Anglo-American idea. But then I kind of thought about the Austrian school of, of economic thought. Libertarianism obviously has quite a, a strong economic bent to it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the Austrian school kind of entails and why they're important to um, this group? Yeah, uh, this is not a, I should qualify this by saying this is certainly not an area in which I'm um, uh, an expert by any means. But in some sense, right, I take you to be asking about people like Hayek, von Mises, um, and, you know, and founders of the Mont Pelerin Society. Uh, and it's true, right? I mean, these are... So in the stuff that I do, in the work that I'm uh, that I'm finishing or that's coming out in, in next month, you know, I look at both contemporary projects, uh, libertarian projects, exit, what I call exit projects, uh, but also earlier versions. And you're absolutely right to stress that, right, there's a long, they don't come out of nowhere. There's a long uh, genealogy here. Um, and it's an important one because uh, certainly the contemporary libertarians today in the United States uh, who are engaged in some of these activities have a tendency to see themselves as sort of sui generis, um, as if, you know, profound ideas only sort of developed in their brains and then they share them with the rest of us, uh, when in fact there's a long tradition of, of many of these kinds of things. It's a fascinating story, I think, in particular in relationship to the United States, but it's not solely a U.S. story. Uh, but certainly um, folks such as Hayek, Rand, who, you know, just doesn't seem to go away despite all the all, all the sort of um, cr crudeness, uh, I think, in some ways of both her fiction and her nonfiction. 
Uh, but Rand, you know, comes from Russia, moves to Southern California, deeply influenced by Hollywood. Uh, you know, she's as much influenced, I think, by Hollywood as she is by um, by New York City and by the Russian Revolution and what happens to her there. And, and certainly people that have written about Rand have been very clear about this. Uh, Lisa Duggan and Mean Girl, Corey Robin and his work, The Reactionary Mind. Um, and so Rand is a very good example here. Uh, Murray Rothbard, Hayek, von Mises, these are all, they come out of a tradition that's, you know, essentially one that sees the, sees a world in which markets rather than states should be sovereign, right? So the idea is to essentially not necessarily get rid of the state, but states exist, but states exist in order to ensure that the market uh, is, is sovereign. And they're deeply influential in the United States in the aftermath of World War II. Um, and I think in part their influence, you know, comes from a certain uh, convergence of things. Uh, one of them being a strong sort of chamber of commerce, businessman's push back against uh, Roosevelt's New Deal. Part of it is a kind of understanding, a conflation of socialism, communism, and fascism as the same thing, essentially, which is totalitarianism, right? They see totalitarianism as this kind of large scale, you know, and of course, American liberals, right? Arthur Schlesinger and the folks who will populate the Kennedy administration share that uh, basic kind of premise. So this is sort of where they're coming from. Many of them would not have called themselves libertarians. Ayn Rand would not have called herself a libertarian. I don't even know. I don't think Friedman would have, although he generally sort of moved in that direction over time, but they did share a number of things in common. I mean, I think they they shared uh, a fear of the masses, uh, a kind of real concern about how the, the world could turn on a dime through sort of demagoguery and mass politics and things like this. So uh, they shared uh, a real faith in the free enterprise system, whatever that term might mean, it was very sort of loose and, and, and fluid, but certainly this kind of dedication to uh, the market. They also shared a kind of faith in, or a sort of view of the world in which you start with the individual, not with the social, um, very problematically so, because of course they also embraced a kind of politics about the family as well, not just the individual. Um, and then they also had a strong, again, sort of ontology or worldview that associated freedom with private property rights. So freedom really was first and foremost defined as the ability to freely uh, engage in contractual relations as an individual. Um, and so, you know, the last thing I'll say about that is, I mean, part of what's interesting is that for them, I think, you know, to give them the benefit of the doubt and to not just sort of be you know, critical, I don't think they were necessarily opposed to uh, concerns with and thinking about questions of equality and things like this, but they saw those things as derivative of the market, right? So if you have freedom in the marketplace, equality will ensue. Some of the individuals, though, who, who were part of this group did not believe that. Murray Rothbard uh, very clearly said uh, it's about freedom and equality is not an issue. And, and in fact, he went further and said egalitarianism is a totalitarian ideology. Um, so you have these, you know, whereas I think for, for many thinkers of the time that would see themselves on the left, they would see these things as having to, ha having to happen simultaneously, not sequentially. You need freedom and equality simultaneously. Yeah, thank you. It, 
it's probably helpful to to mention at this stage that my the last podcast I put out on Sunday was about Margaret Thatcher, who, oh. um, in many ways, at least in the UK, represents the kind of electoral triumph of many of these concepts. She was obviously elected about 18 months before Ronald Reagan was elected in the United States, who represented many of the, the similar things. Something that I was thinking about quite a lot when you were talking about the, the conception of freedom as very much based around financial ideas, making money, uh, entering into contractual obligations. That obviously has us, there's an important element about the state there. There's a, you know, a, a, I think the way that it, the uh, Thatcherism and Reaganism are often thought about is, is this rolling back of the state, a slimming of the state. But if you look at the way, for example, that the miners' strikes were dealt with in the UK in the 1980s, or the Reagan administration dealt with something like the air traffic controller strike, I can't remember what year that was in. Um, these were not really small state responses. These were quite authoritarian responses, really. Um, you know, uh, put you know, putting down strikes in very in very violent ways, rolling back trade union rights. These are these are big state responses. This is this this is people using the state against people, right? I mean, do you think that the kind of adventure capitalist or libertarian claims about wanting to reduce the size of government is a bit of a a farce? I mean, they don't really care about the size of the state exactly. It's just making sure that the state is doing what they want. That's absolutely right. Um, so the the idea of the minimalist or ultra minimalist state has little to do with uh, the size of the state. It has to do with the range of its functions. Right? That's the, the crux. And so, uh, you know, you can find plenty of quotes from, from Friedman uh, and others talking exactly about this, essentially saying that the only role of the state should be to, you know, sort of enforce and, and to protect and so on and so forth. Uh, and it's about protecting property rights, national defense, and the like. And of course, that's a manifesto for a, a big state. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the sort of military apparatus is expensive. Uh, policing is expensive. Uh, enforcement of patent laws, uh, ensuring that uh, questions of fraud are uh, investigated properly, contractual uh, obligations are enforced, and so on and so forth. This is a manifesto for a large state, not a small state, right? So it's minimalist in the range of its functions, right? So it's it's a it's a state that doesn't uh, necessarily then intervene in the array of other things around social life. You know, the, the, the fascinating thing is, um, you know, there were real efforts to theorize this. Uh, Robert Nozick's right, Anarchy State Utopia um, was probably the most, um, at some level, I think, sophisticated philosophical effort to address this. And he himself you know, said that he came into the project uh, with a lot of disdain for libertarianism and yet constantly confronted uh, right, a sort of uh, event horizon of his own thinking and sort of arguing with, uh, with libertarian thought. He subsequently then you know, sort of went on later in life to kind of reject his own willingness to, uh, to, to meet libertarianism more than halfway. But, you know, this was a, this was a real effort on his part to kind of think through exactly these questions about why, you know, the, the sort of possibility of utopia 
is one in which you have this state that has very constrained uh, functions and so forth. But he very much admitted, you know, out of the gate that it's going to have to have certain kinds of functions, right? The night watchman state, you know, there's a lot of night watchmen and a lot of them carry big sticks, you know. Um, the irony, I think, in part is that, you know, Reagan, when he came into office, actually told the, the National Chamber of Commerce in the United States, told businessmen that he was going to have the most protectionist uh, government that they'd ever had in terms of business people. So again, very selective, uh, you know, huge wars in Central America, right? financing and funneling money illegally. And, you know, it was a crony state uh, at some level as well. And so, you know, there's a, there's a significant irony. And precisely as you point out, the repression, right, of the coal miners in England, the sort of language of the internal enemy, um, right, which Thatcher deployed and which was not uncommon either in the Reagan administration. All of these things are indications of a certain kind of state rather than uh, no state. And I'll, you know, I'll just give you another example here, Newt Gingrich, right, uh, the sort of avatar of the craziness that U.S. politics has become. I mean, his contract with America was, you know, it wasn't an agreement with, this, with the country. It was a contract to kill it, right? It was a, it was, he was taking out a contract on the state, on the country, you know, but um, for all of his anti-statist rhetoric, uh, he represented an extremely rich suburban district of Atlanta that got enormous amounts of public funding. Um, and that didn't go anywhere under Gingrich. Um, and so they're playing, you know, they're playing to a certain audience that has a, a certain conception of what they mean by the state uh, in all of this. But uh, you're absolutely right. This is not... Um, this is this is not some kind of uh, you know small state stripping it down, rolling it back, all this kind of stuff. It's completely reworking uh, where its efforts go, where its funding goes, uh, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So it's just big in a different way, really. What we've been talking about so far, you would place on the kind of hard right of the traditional economic left-right spectrum. Can a left winger be a libertarian? <laughs> That's a good question. Huh? Uh, well, it's funny, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day. Um, I was reading Mitchell Dean and Daniel Zamora's The Last Man Takes LSD uh, about Foucault and neoliberalism. Uh, and pretty compelling um, little book, actually. And, uh, and they, they sort of, I think they lay out uh, a fairly persuasive scenario of kind of making sense of um of the 1970s and and foucault and this kind of right effort to deal with a new kind of politics and thinking about the possibility of a kind of market leftism right which might be seen in some not as a contradiction in terms but certainly a kind of problematic um uh, a, a tricky uh arrangement to achieve um so but I would also say that the libertarians that I'm looking at here, the possibility of um, a kind of left-wing libertarianism is, in some sense, right, we are talking more about kind of anarchist politics uh, in some sense. I, and it's not like there are not examples of uh, kind of, ex, you know, so a lot of the stuff I'm writing about are these exit communities, these efforts to create these private forms of governance uh, and, and the like, not to sort of leap ahead, but anyway. And you certainly have uh, different kinds of examples of those, but I don't think they're in any way comparable 
to the things that I'm looking at. So just to give you an example, the, you know, the autonomous territories of the Zapatistas in southern Mexico um, as, as one example, right? Or, you know, to go back historically, maroon communities uh, of escaped slaves, right? These are, these are, in some sense, exit societies that are attempting to get away from the sort of dominant state structure. And in, even in certain instances, like the Zapatistas, to challenge a, a certain kind of nation-state paradigm. But, but they're, what they're escaping or evading might be a better word. And what they're attempting to devise and create is remarkably different. Right? So uh, libertarians are not going to, in any way, shape, or form, step out of uh, the kind of financial structures uh, in which they have, you know, they've invested enormously in different kinds of ways. So I think there's, a, there's that kind of variation that I think is very important. It's important to recognize the similarity in form, in other words, but not to conflate the form with the content. Uh, I think paying attention to the content of the thought uh, and the set of practices that come along with the content right, are, are important to keep in mind. Sure. I think to some extent, the way I've always understood it is that left-wing people are libertarian on a, in a more in a kind of social sense. They don't uh -huh. want the state to interfere in, you know, who you sleep with, the drugs you right. take, sure. uh, whether you can marry, uh, and perhaps right-wing people are libertarian in, a, in an economic sense. I, I think what you're, if if I'm, if I'm correct in in understanding what you've just said a concern among some left-wingers would be that the two kind of merge um to the extent that society is incredibly free in in us in in a social sense but also there's very very few protections in for uh poor people economically yeah i mean i you know the, one of the ways i would talk about this as well or i would i would suggest thinking about it, i mean you know some of the some of the folks that I write about get frustrated that I use the term right wing for them precisely for the reasons that you mentioned, right? They want to do away with draconian drug laws. Uh, and I'm totally in agreement with that. I mean, you know, there's, uh, they want people to be allowed to marry who they want to marry, identify how they want to identify and so on and so forth. But interestingly enough, uh, right, it, there's, there's a kind of genealogy to a lot of this thinking that is, that is problematic. I mean, the, just to give you the example of, um, a contemporary uh, version of this, right? The Seasteaders, right? These are folks who have been financed by Peter Thiel, uh, Milton Friedman's grandson, Patrick Friedman, is um, one of the sort of founders of the Seasteading Institute. And the idea was to try to create uh, sovereign f floating platforms on the high seas, right? The idea being, I mean, they, you know, they didn't quite have this right, but that, that the high seas were a place open for the creation you know, for colonization, the creation of a certain kind of uh, private sovereign entity. And it's, you know, it's complicated. They had to get a lot of money and there's a lot of engineering issues and labor issues and so on and so forth. And they haven't been successful thus far. And they've moved much more closer to shore now back into the sort of economic zone, exclusive economic zone, the violent nations and the like. But part of the premise was that people should be, you know, not constrained by the government in terms of whether it be drug use, polyamory, who you marry, so on and so forth. And, but the frustrating thing, of course, is that the majority of individuals who have the money to invest in these kinds of projects and support these kinds of projects, they're not going to jail for drug use anytime soon anyway. And in fact, right, the people who are most persecuted by the drug war that started under Reagan uh, are communities of color and poor communities. 
who, frankly, are not going to be escaping to a multi-million dollar floating platform in the Pacific anytime soon. And so it's a, it's a disingenuous uh, set of, um, of arguments that are being made, and I find it quite uh, frustrating. The thing about right-wing uh, that's interesting as well, the sort of language of the right-wing, um, or the sort of using that term, I guess, is a better way to say it, you know, what's quite fascinating to me is the, the social conservatism that is embedded in the economic thought uh, as it develops in the 1960s. And that is to say, um, you know, it was white communities uh, in places like Atlanta, uh, but also in parts of L.A., uh, right, that are um, responding to right, the civil rights movement, responding to attempts to integrate communities, uh, affordable housing, and things like this, that, you know, these white communities are the ones who engage in white flight and use the language of property rights as a way to uh, couch, right, their, their racism. Um, and they're using the language of the market libertarians, right, uh, as a way to uh, essentially engage in, in very reactionary uh, politics. So my own feeling is that this distinction between a kind of right, you know, far right economics or right right wing economics and uh, and the kind of social conservative uh, position, those things aren't distinct. I think they come together in pretty profound ways uh, in in the 1960s. And certainly you can see it in the language of of some of the folks writing at the time who you know are sort of on the kind of libertarian or neoliberal end of things, you know, the fear of, you know, uh, urban uprisings. I mean, there's a lot of coded language, right? A lot of coded language about where totalitarianism is coming from. They're not critiquing the John Birchers, you know, or the KKK, uh, right? They're critiquing right, social movements uh, for trying, trying to extend emancipation to a lot of people who uh, continue to be uh, oppressed and repressed. And so um, there's this Right, this intersection between those things that I think we shouldn't elide. Yeah. I want to come to the modern day, Raymond. Um, let's talk about Elon Musk. <laughs> Is Elon Musk an adventure capitalist? Absolutely. You know, he's someone that I don't write about um, as much as I might, you know, write about, uh, let's say, Branson. Um, Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel is certainly much more outspoken about his own libertarianism, about his own trajectory, um, you know, which is always nice for someone writing uh, because you have someone, you know, giving voice to their own kind of trajectory. Um, but certainly I would include Musk here. Um, you can include him not only because just of, of the wealth and the, the kinds of subsidies, you know, that his companies have been access to public monies and the like and so forth and the kinds of negotiations that he's tried to undertake in, in Nevada and elsewhere right, to, uh, to create essentially what are kind of company towns, which you know, aren't exactly, you know, libertarian exit societies, but they have this, you know, they have this kind of interesting relationship to the, to the state. Um, but yeah, so I see someone like Musk uh, very much uh, in this. I mean, the, um, you know, the famous tweet that he sent out about, you know, we'll coup whoever we want when it came to the question about lithium extraction and the Bolivian government. Uh, I think it's a classic example of adventure 
capitalism. And, uh, and if it raises in someone's mind, you know, ITT and, uh, and the coup d'etat against Allende in, in Chile in 1973, there's a reason that it, that it raises that. Um, and, it, you know, this, this kind of imperialist and imperious sense, right, of capitalist self, uh, and what's good for the world and this unremitting, unbounding faith in sort of profit and technology um, is very much wrapped up with someone like Musk. And of course, the contemporary language of, uh, you know, we're going to make the world a better place and make a whole lot of money in the process is, is part and parcel uh, of this as well. I mean, I kind of see that as almost a defining characteristic of adventure capitalism, these you know, essentially at root, in some sense, I think, contradictory uh, positions, but that are held very strongly. I'll say one last thing about this. Another individual here that's quite fascinating in this regard is a guy named Michael Strong, probably less well-known to listeners. But, you know, Michael Strong is the sort of, again, tech Silicon Valley entrepreneur, social entrepreneur. Sometimes they call themselves radical social entrepreneurs. You know, Strong sort of, he was involved in various things, tried to get on the ground in Honduras uh, after the coup d'etat in 2009 to set up you know, free private cities. I can talk more about those if you'd like. But the thing about Strong that's interesting is, um, you know, his sense of self, you know, sort of overwhelming sense of self, you know, he deigns himself important enough to his past, his own law, but not only his own sort of, you know, law, but it has a corollary, right? <laughs> so Strong's law about markets and business and states, and then it has a corollary. I mean, yeah, it's outrageously arrogant. Um, and then on top of that, uh, Strong is... He, he commented, I went to this thing in 2017, the Startup Societies Foundation um, meeting. And on the stage at that, there's a big gathering of libertarians at the City College of San Francisco, of all places, a publicly funded college. Um, but on the stage, you know, he said, uh, he said, you know, he's tired of his friends giving him, giving him grief about the projects that he's involved in and making the world a better place and so on and so forth. And, and then he sort of, you know, he said, he said, I'm a leftist. And then he started going on about capitalism saving the world. And it's this totally bizarre um, ideological universe, right? Um, and I think at some level, there's that kind of disconnect amongst uh, some of these folks, right? It's just a, it's a weird sense. And I think it comes out of a sort of, you know, a longstanding North American tradition of not having people learn political economy in high school uh, or reading, you know, reading the basics. I mean, it's amazing how ignorant they are compared to their peers in Mexico or Chile or, you know, probably the UK for that matter. Um, and so, you know, yeah, anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent, but of course I would put Musk right in, right in this. Absolutely. It's really interesting what you just said about the almost, um, either being very ignorant about, about how poor their knowledge is about economics, but also there's a, Something I realized recently, I, I saw a, a photo of Musk, Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson on Twitter. You may have seen the photo as well. They were in Austin. The photo was taken by Michael Malice, who's another quite interesting progenitor of a lot of sort of anarchist libertarian theory in America today. Um, but I think those other two, um, Rogan and Peterson, especially Rogan, you could also argue the case for them being a sort of adventure capitalist in the terms that you've put it it struck me when i saw them all three of them together you know they're three incredibly famous successful wealthy people but they all claim to be kind of attack under attack in some way 
um, from the state or from certain factions within the state, from the media, the opinion forming classes, the universities is another one that they constantly talk about. And I think it goes back to something quite fundamental to American conservatism and, and libertarianism. There's always this anti-establishment, anti-intellectual, anti-elite mentality that's so central to it that I almost can't imagine libertarianism without it in the American context. It has such a victimhood complex to it and always has, I think. Where do you think that comes from? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it does strike me at least um, that part of this comes out of this ongoing, long ongoing history of reckoning that's not reckoning in the United States around race and slavery, right? I mean, the it's not surprising to me the, the sort of, in, you know, the, the vehemently, um, you know, the, the, the vehemence with which people are um, misrepresenting and attacking things like critical race theory and, um, and, uh, and other kinds of things that are being taught in schools and, and in universities. Um, and, you know, I think part of this comes from a, a kind of long unwillingness to recognize where the wealth of this country, from where the wealth of this country derives, right? Either from primitive accumulation in the form of the expropriation of native people's lands and livelihoods, or from the expropriation, the primitive accumulation and expropriation of people's labor in the backs of, of enslaved Africans. I mean, and, and at some level, I mean, I think there's, there's a way in which this is constantly being um, uh, pushed to the, to the side, the, the constant effort to kind of address these, um, address these histories and these issues. I mean, you know, the 60s in part was an effort to, you know, and you think about some of the great uh, works of, of, of history that were written in the, in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, right, that tried to engage with these questions. And I mean, it, provide, it provokes a kind of uh, backlash, not only amongst libertarians, of course, um, but I do think there's a kind of unwillingness you know, to, to recognize this long history of sort of attenuated complicity. Yeah. The other person that I wanted to discuss with you or the other group of people that I think fit in, especially now, to the idea of adventure capitalism is, is the tech giants. And Mark Zuckerberg in particular, for re, because I, I think obviously people will know that recently he rebranded the Facebook holding company as Meta, and this is a, he's starting to talk seriously about this idea of the metaverse this you know virtual reality world where people can escape to and this is almost taking adventure capitalism to a completely new level it's literally exporting yourself somewhere else right to an entirely different place and and it's 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 you know pitting life as an adventure as something beyond reality do you think that um the internet or the development of the internet has basically meant that adventure capitalists and these this extreme form of, of uh, capitalism will eventually or is sort of winning the day now. Do you think that there's, there's um, do you think there's any kind of uh, any way of, of sort of rowing back from this now? Yeah. The, the Zuckerberg meta curse, uh, I think is what we should probably call it. Um, you know, 
I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, you know, so in my own work, one of the things that I, I made a decision fairly early on to, in part because of sheer ignorance out of, on my own part uh, of not, you know, not understanding how these things work and sort of trying to understand them and not always being particularly successful. I made a decision fairly early on to look at libertarian projects that are recognizably territorial. Um, so we might call them analog projects instead of digital projects. But you're correct, right? This is this is all linked up to, in some sense, especially the contemporary projects, has close connections to Bitcoin mining, Ethereum, uh, cryptocurrencies, um, less so to central bank digital currencies. But even then, you know, there's a little bit of that sort of playing around in the margins. But I think that's, you know, something probably more recognizable to many of us. Usually they're pegged to to a national currency and so on. So. Um, but you're correct. I mean, the, there's a lot of the, you know, this question of singularity, right? Artificial intelligence, uh, orbital space colonization um, and the like. I mean, the, I think the sort of space colonization side of this is not something that's going to happen anytime soon. I remember someone writing um, recently about just how many people it takes on the ground to keep one person alive in space. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's quite extraordinary. So, uh, but a lot of the stuff, right, translating your consciousness into, you know, computer code. Um, and there's, you know, the sci-fi of, of Gibson and Neil Stephenson and Cory Doctorow, you know, I, I find it quite compelling. Um, and it's not, uh, it, these are not things that I necessarily would scoff at, but, but they're not things that, that I sort of, uh, went into, uh, and, and, um, and approach, but they're clearly right. There's there's clearly seriousness about this. There's a lot of investment in you know in cryogenics, for example, and uh, you know finding sites where uh, someone's body can be stored until it can be resuscitated, and sometime in the future when um, when the technology catches up with the possibility of resuscitation uh, and so forth. But the the territorial projects, I mean, I think should be of immediate concern um, because. All of, you know, many of these experiments, the ones that I've been tracking thus far, you know, haven't, haven't come to fruition. Uh, and a lot of them are kind of, you know, you can sort of laugh about them. I mean, the fi they're, they're like versions of the fire festival, you know, but, but with, you know, this, this kind of political purpose. Um, but even then, you know, complete disasters. Um, and and they're, in many cases, they're a kind of grift, right? They're, they're kind of efforts to just make money uh, and come up with something new and shiny to try to get people to invest in. And so I kind of, you know, one of the ways I put this is they're less Thomas More than they are J.W. Marriott. You know, um, it's timeshare sovereignty at some level that you're looking at. You're not looking at utopia. Um, but these, are pro th these experiments are unfolding. And in some places they're unfolding with, you know, fits and starts, but you're starting to see more and more discussion with national governments about ceding pieces of sovereign national territory to a board of international investors who would have oversight that would have a kind of arbitration board rather than a judicial system, places where none of the articles of the constitution of the state in question would apply. So essentially these are ceding national sovereign territory to investors to create uh, usually, not always, but usually gated or closed communities that would have their own, you know, their own uh, kind of operating uh, constitution and the like. I mean, the most recent place where this was 
has been tried out is in Honduras. And uh, it started in 2009 with um, Charter Cities by Paul Romer, uh, who was most recently the chief economist at the World Bank, briefly, and is an um, economist at NYU now. You know, but Romer, Romer's idea was, I mean, he drew from certain kinds of libertarian ideas, like the, the these, these old experiments about, you know, making citizenship something on the market, right? So that people can kind of opt in and opt out of wherever they want to be, according to the kinds of laws and regulations that exist in a place. Of course, you know, with the idea that all the rest of the noise that infiltrates those kinds of models, you have to put to the side, right? Things like immigration laws and migration laws and, you know, so on and so forth, borders. Um, and you know, so Romer had a kind of, uh, you know, he's thinking about a kind of nostalgic vision of Hong Kong and, and things like this. But then very quickly, Romer's idea got taken up and turned into a, um, a, a much stronger libertarian idea, which is to essentially uh, create these special economic zones with their own judiciary and arbitration board overseen by international investors, uh, their own kinds of taxation programs or lack of taxation programs, and so on and so forth. Um, and they had a lot of support from basically what was an illegal uh, regime that was put into place by a coup d'etat in 2009. Uh, so they were working with, you know, they were working with this this pretty authoritarian state, as you as you mentioned earlier. That these things aren't uh, antithetical to one another. In fact, so much so that the seasteaders, right, who were associated with some of these projects in Honduras, in 2015, they held in San Francisco this big event called Disrupting Democracy, and completely tone deaf right, to the everyday experience of Hondurans who were suffering a, an extremely violent and continually violent coup d'etat, they invited the president of Honduras, of this coup regime, Juan Orlando Hernandez, I mean, to something called disrupting democracy. It was outrageous, uh, just absolutely appalling, in my opinion. Um, and so, but those kinds of projects, I mean, they're, they're, right, they're, in fits and starts, they're moving forward. And legal kinds of programs right, are being created and generated uh, and practiced and tried out. And so a lot of this, a lot of this stuff is getting experimented with uh, around the, the globe. Um, and so, you know, and I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, uh, a sort of ardent defender of the nation state. Um, but I think it's, you know, things need to be clear about what, what is going to be set up in its place in some of these instances. Again, it's not just about form. It's about, it's about content. Um, yeah. If I can just follow up something that you said a second ago, Ray, this idea that you spoke of, of rich people and adventure capitalists basically taking bits of foreign countries and ensuring that their own rules apply rather than the laws and constitutions of, of whole countries is very worrying because you have to ask yourself what these people want to do uh, in these places uh, that they can't do in the United States or Britain or, or kind of law-governed countries, especially after the revelations about people like Jeffrey Epstein who were kind of setting up their own utopian societies as they saw it and doing awful things. Um, that's very worrying, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, it is one of the issues that clearly uh, I think have people have to think about. I mean, I'll say a couple of things about this. I mean, you know, in some instances, it's fascinating, right? Because the, the, there are projects uh, to try to set up 
sort of private sovereign countries on the ocean. I think I mentioned the seasteaders. Um, and of course, they have a misreading of international law and the law of the high seas uh, and so forth. It's not that the high seas aren't a lawless place. I mean, there, there are international laws that apply. Um, but I think more generally, it, it is a big concern um, in part because, of course, the, the, the premise uh, of, um, of people being free right, to be who they are and to act as they wish to act may entail acting in ways that are extraordinarily egregious and bad towards other people. You know, just to give you an example, one of the people that's fairly prominent at the beginning of the book that I just finished, um, a guy by the name of Morris Davis, by the name of Bud, Bud Davis. And he, he talked about this very publicly when there was an effort to dredge sand in Atoll, south of Tonga, on the Minerva Reef, and to build a, uh, a kind of libertarian city there. You know, and the idea wasn't just about hiding money and tax havenry and, and so on and so forth. As he put it, you know, people will be able to do whatever they damn well please. Right? This was his kind of statement, uh, including, you know, opening bars without licenses, pornography, uh, whatever they wish to do. Right? And, um, and of course, on the one hand, there's a lot of liberatory, getting out of sort of bourgeois mores, getting out of the sort of stultifying uh, constraints uh, of sort of, um, you know, middle class uh, uh, values and so on and so forth. On the other hand, of course, you can see people being radically exploited and taken advantage of. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, Jeffrey Epstein's island, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the ultimate dystopia. Um, there were efforts uh, by a company called Blue Seed to create, uh, they wanted to create a floating, a large floating platform, like aircraft carrier size floating platform off of Big Sur, California, south of San Francisco. But it would be just outside of the political jurisdiction of the United States. And the idea was to set it up and, as they put it, to hack U.S. immigration laws, to bypass U.S. immigration laws and bring in uh, engineers of various kinds who could connect to what they call the Silicon Valley ecosystem via helicopter. Um, of course, the terrifying thing here is that what, and what kind of protections would they have had on a floating platform, you know, 13 miles out? Uh, from ocean, from from the coastline and outside of political jurisdiction, in which they didn't have right a, a visa. I mean, it, you you could see them uh, essentially uh, as you know sort of engineering surfs uh, on a kind of feudal aircraft carrier out in the, in the waters. And so the you know the, the implications, the potential implications for some of these kinds of projects uh, are, I think, you know, problematic in that respect. I'll I'll mention one last thing, which is the you know, the case of the island off the coast of Honduras, Ruatan, uh, where there was a project underway that's gotten, you know, went fairly, fairly far along up until about November when an opposition politician was elected. But it wasn't clear even if things like extradition laws would apply. And I think this is part of the reason why the president at the time, Juan Orlando Hernandez, uh, who had ties to market trafficking, uh, was, was quite a supporter uh, of the project uh, because there was this concern about you know, he's got family members who've been convicted and, and so on and so forth. So, yes, uh, all of that is to say that right, there, it is, um, you know, these things can be very emancipatory for some, but extraordinarily oppressive uh, for others. Traditionally, I think 
when nationalism as an idea became vogue in the sort of 19th century, it was often considered as a kind of left-wing concept among many, especially among many Europeans, because it was a way of shielding oneself against uh, imperialism or against uh, kind of foreign market forces and, and the way that they interact with imperial adventures. Recently, nationalism, I would say, has become a an idea more closely associated with the right, uh, with as, as as a more kind of a sort of racial nationalism or an ethnic nationalism. Do you think that as it if if this these kind of radically decentralized gated communities that you're talking about become more and more commonplace, do you think that more people uh, on the left of politics will re-embrace the idea of an overarching nation-state as a way of guarding against um, these ultra-capitalist modes of organization? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, you know, the, the, the state has for so long been sort of beaten up on, you know, especially since the era of Thatcher and Reagan, that you know, it does seem in some sense, I, it doesn't have to be nationalistic, uh, but but in some sense, the question about uh, the, the nation state and sort of what it is and what it does, maybe it deserves some reconsideration um, or, or sort of rethinking uh, at some level. You know, the the projects that I was just talking about, I mean, it, forms of those have been around for some time. Um, you had uh, already in the 1950s, I mean, Mike Davis uh, in City of Courts writes about this uh, a little bit, but already in the 50s and 60s, you have essentially what are kind of, you know, quasi-suburban districts of Los Angeles that are contracting out for what are traditionally municipal services. Um, and these are generally wealthy, wealthier suburban areas. Um, and of course they contract out instead of having their own fire service and their own police service and so on and so forth, they contract out and they basically save money on the public's dime, right? It's a kind of economy of scale argument in which instead of funding, right, because then you have to sort of retirements and pensions and so on and so forth. And so contracting this stuff out is not, it, it's not new, right? There is a kind of version of this. It's not a, of course, it's not your own private, <laughs> you know, your own private archipelago. Um, but it is certainly, you know, a gradual kind of form of uh, social secession. Um, and so a lot of the, what's interesting is a lot of the kind of, you know, um, projects of the 1960s and 1970s of, you know, Ernest Hemingway's brother tried to set up, you know, uh, his own little floating nation off the coast of Jamaica. And, you know, it's a very, very funny thing that he did. There's a lot of these kinds of efforts and I track a lot of them in my book, especially those of a guy named Michael Oliver. Um, and all of this in the high era of decolonization. It's not surprising. They're looking at all these places that are decolonizing and they're trying to sort of get in, um, in some sense, and to build these sort of utopian spaces or these private spaces. In the 1980s, a lot of these projects kind of disappear. Uh, and I think they disappear precisely because Reagan uh, makes it, and so does Thatcher, they make it kind of easier for you to socially secede without territorially seceding. So why go through all the pain? right, of ter territorial secession and all the kind of complications that come with it and, and so on and so forth, na you know, navigating another uh, country's legal system and so on. And instead, they, you know, increasingly socially secede. Um, and, uh, you know, the creation of uh, common interest developments, uh, privatized homeowners, certain kinds of homeowner associations that 
um, as well. I mean, you, you see these um, entities being created. I mean, outside of Atlanta, there's a very famous town. Um, I can't recall the name off the top of my head. But you see these kinds of efforts, right, to, to increasingly uh, separate from the broader uh, sort of public uh, good. So I don't think these ones, what we're watching now, are necessarily new. I think what is new about them is they're driven by this very Promethean tech ego. It's the desire to, um, unlike I think a lot of the projects of the 60s and 70s, which you know you can agree with or not agree with, but in many instances I think you know it's it's fair to say to give some of those folks the benefit of the doubt. They were worried about totalitarianism. They were worried about their safety. Some of some of these folks had survived horrific things in their childhood and in their lives in Europe. Um, and so they were looking to kind of protect themselves and, and yeah, they wanted to protect their wealth and so forth, but they were also genuinely existentially fearful. That's not, I don't think that's the case now at all. Peter Thiel and Elon Musk aren't existentially fearful of anything. Um, this is kind of very Nietzschean, right? It's a kind of desire to bend reality to, to one's will. Um, and so I think it's got a different inflection, uh, that's that's important to to keep in mind but there's a long history to these things that's a far away away from your question about nationalism and 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 the state um so you know just to come back to that i do think right there's a kind of uh, you know part of i think what's unfolding now is this kind of rethinking of um of the state but without right, necessarily a sort of embrace of uh, projects such as these they're not a, i mean these are not a, some kind of new innovative way of thinking about the nation state and sovereignty and i don't i just don't buy that for a second i think this is this is sheer grift capitalism um you know this, this is uh real estate speculation um and so i you know i don't see it as kind of antithetical in some sense to the state and obviously with the tech element there's also a, an incredible issue of of ratcheting up uh inequality as well completely that's right right i really enjoyed that that was great thank you very much um where can people find your work if they want to read more about this it's a very interesting topic and um you know i think there's an awful you know this is this, there's more much more of this story to come throughout the the lives of the people that are the that are listening to this where can people go yeah there's a couple of places um on, I have some links on my uh, Cornell History Department webpage to some writing that I've done. I did a piece called Egotopia with Counterpunch in August of 2018. I recently did an interview with uh, Atusa Araxia Abrahamian on her substack Terra Nullius. It's a sort of Q&A. Um, and then uh, on the PM Press website, pmpress.org, uh, there's a page dedicated to the book. The book's coming out on the 14th of January, Adventure Capitalism, A History of Libertarian Exit from the Era of Decolonization to the Digital Age. And there's some information there as well about the book and, and some blog posts that I've done uh, on this material. So those are some of the places. And of course, people can get in touch with me directly if they would like to. Uh, I'm certainly happy to uh, have correspondence via email. Ray, thank you. Cheers. A pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Hated and the Dead. If you've enjoyed this podcast, follow it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and, for good measure, leave us a review. You can also follow The Hated and the Dead on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, so you never miss new content.